Shall we just pray before the word? Father, we come to this part of the of our time together when we hear from your word. And Lord, it's true to say that the, the words that come out are just words from the from the lips of a man standing behind a, a piece of wood. But as we've already asked this morning, would you would you speak to us? Would you bring them alive? Would you would you make them relevant to each and every one of us? Your word has told us that all that the scripture is breathed from your very being and mouth itself and that it's profitable for teaching and for rebuke and for all those things that we require in life. And we just ask, Father, that you would speak to us in that way this morning, whether we need guidance, whether we need truth, whether we need a rebuke, whether we need challenge, we ask that you would accomplish that this morning. Lord, open our ears and our hearts and may you be glorified in all that's said. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at Psalm 1 together this morning. Psalm 1, if you want to turn there with me. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Psalm 1. It's one of one of my favourite psalms. That probably the reason for that is that as we were being mentored um, as brothers, this was one of the psalms that we spent a lot of time in, focused a lot of our attention in, and it became really a, a very affectionate psalm. We used to call it the Psalm One Man. As you read through this, it tells you about what a what actually a Christian ought to be and what he ought not to be. And we spent a lot of time in this. And John MacArthur says this about the psalm itself. He says, basically, it functions as an introduction to the whole book of Psalms. This, this one psalm introduces the whole book of Psalms. And in fact, it speaks about what you're going to be hearing over the rest of the book of the Psalms. But he also says this, its theme is as big as the whole Bible. The theme of this one Psalm is as big as the whole of Scripture itself. And I would agree with that. I would fully agree with what he says. And if we agree with that, then we must take time to look at what it says because it's important. Hugely important. There are statements 
within this that speak about the revelation of God. There's revelation of man. There's revelation about eternity. And it brings to us a great clarity on man's relationship with God. It shows us the effects of that relationship, both in this temporal life that we live and in the eternal life, which is is yet to come. And for me, this psalm, if you look at it properly and if you read it through it, it unveils the gospel. It shows what Christ has done for his people. And it's, it's that that I want us to, to look at this morning. It's huge. And we must take time to look at the realities that are in this psalm. If we look closer, closely, the psalmist tells us that there's only two types of people that are, that are in this world. You know, we're living in a time, aren't we, where diversity rules, where there's lots of different types of people you can be. You can actually choose what you want to be. You can wake up one morning and be one thing. You can wake up the next morning. If you decide, you can be that. But this psalm is very clear. It tells us there's only two types of people. And we're not talking male and female. We're talking the wicked and the righteous. Two. That's it. And in our modern day Christianity and the culture that we live in, I believe that we've moved away from talking like this. We're very much focused on the fact that everybody has a little bit of good in them or people are good underneath the skin. Everybody is good. It's just that sometimes they choose to do the wrong things. But when when we look very closely at what this word tells us, we're going to see very clearly that that's not the case. We're not all good. There is wicked and there are righteous. Now, there's lots of things that, that we as men and women don't like to hear. And because we don't like to hear them, we dismiss, we dis- dismiss them or we, we don't bother to look into them because actually it's speaking about something that we don't want to know about. We, 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 we close our ears, we make ourselves purposely deaf, if you like. We gouge, gouge our own eyes out so that we don't have to look at what's right in front of us because we don't like what it says. And we see that throughout history, don't we? we the, the times that, that things, leaders have gone their own way, dictators, they don't take notice of what things are being said. They walk in their own direction. We see it in the lives of, of people around us. And unfortunately, if we're to look close enough, we sit in our own lives. We block out things that we don't want to see and we live the life that we want to live because that's how we want to live it. But irrespective of how we see the world and people and ourselves, the reality is that all people fall into one of these categories. All. So the first question that I want us all to consider this morning is which, which category is it that you fall into? 
which category do I fall into? Do we fall into the wicked? Or do we fall into the righteous? Plume and the commentator says this. Let the difference between sin and holiness, saints and sinners, never be denied, never be forgotten. Eternity alone will show us how great it is. And then Romans 3 verses 3 to 4 tells us this. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar. The point about those two comments is that that God is sovereign, God is supreme, and, and no matter how much we bark against the truth, the fact is that actually if we go against what God says, it's not him that's a liar, it's us. If we push to one side the things that he's saying, It's us that becomes the one that has our eyes clouded and it's not God who is the one that's lying. So back to that question. Which category do you fall into? Which category do I fall into? We're going to answer that a little bit later on. The psalmist, as you read through this piece of writing, defines and describes these two characters very powerfully. And he does it by using contrasting metaphorical language. And we're going to look at that over the next few minutes together. He contrasts the two against each other and he uses descriptions of what these two men are like or not like to make a definite point. Not a a maybe point. What we're reading here is very definite. But firstly, I want us to focus on the ungodly. The negative. If you read Martin Lloyd-Jones' stuff, that's where he always starts. He starts with the negative and then he moves on to the positive. And that's, that's what I want us to do this, this morning. Let's focus on the ungodly. And the way that the psalmist does this, he tells us what the, the godly man is not like to describe the ungodly man. And he gives three name tags that's associated to the ungodly. Firstly, the ungodly or the wicked. Secondly, the sinner. Thirdly, mocker and scoffer. And then he he lists three motions that these three people do. Firstly, they walk. Secondly, they stand. Thirdly, they sit. And then he gives us three places that the ungodly find themselves or put themselves in purposefully. One, in the council. Two, in the way. And three, in the seat. I want us to look at those three name tags, the characters, the motions, and the places they put themselves in quite closely for a few minutes. The ungodly and the wicked. So this is more than just a moral or judicial sense of wickedness. This wickedness is purposed, it's active. This is what the person is. 
This is what he's known for. This is how he made he is made up. This is how he ticks. The per, this person doesn't follow after godly ways. He's not interested in anything to do with God. He doesn't venerate or lift God up to his position where he should be. He doesn't reverence him. He doesn't respect him in any way whatsoever. He doesn't give him the glory that is due. He doesn't look at creation and think how wonderful a God there must be. He's exactly the opposite to that. And this man, this ungodly, wicked man, he walks the course of his life. He roams around in the governance of his own counsel, of his own desires, of his own fleshly lusts, of the way that he wants to walk. That's how he lives life. That's the wicked man. And he collaborates and he consults and he conspires with the counsel of like-minded people. He looks at his own wisdom and the wisdom of those who are like him, his capacity and his principles. They rule in everything that he does. The psalmist says, blessed is the man who is not like this. Secondly, the sinner. Now, sinner is, a, is a, a general word for a wrongdoer, somebody who misses the mark. Somebody who transgresses the law of God, somebody whose actions goes against everything that, that God says is wrong. But again, this is not out of ignorance. This is a willful, purposeful decision to walk in their own ways and not the ways of God. And this isn't just a temporary blip. This is not just you wake up in the morning and you make a bit of a mistake. This is a way of life. This is a choice. This is how they live day in, day out in sin, living against God, living against the laws of God. And that's how they work. They stand in the way of sin, firm. They won't be moved. This is how I want to live life. And this is how I'm going to live it. They live constantly and perpetually with it. They don't move away with it. They side with it in persistence. And they practice notoriously known sins and offences. It's their natural inclination. It's their natural sentiment. It's their natural desires. It's their natural course of life. They're in bondage to it. They're governed by it. Again, the psalmist says, blessed is the man who is not like this. And then thirdly, the scoffer and the mocker. These people are proud, arrogant people, clever and wise in their own esteem. They despise and hate anything that's holy, and they mock and scoff anybody who wants to walk in the path of holiness and righteousness. They persecute them. They laugh and they scorn and they jest. And these people, they sit down 
comfortably in their way of life. They sit down in an assembly of, of people of like mind and they join together in this mocking and scoffing of the things of God for their whole life. You see it as we live this Christian life. Those who point and laugh and say, God, where is you, God? What's he doing for you? They jest and, and laugh and spit in the face of the crucifixion. No interest. And all they do is mock. Again, the psalmist says, blessed is the man who is not like this. Now, it's very important that we notice two things about this type of people. And the first thing is this, that there is a, a natural downward spiral for the wicked. First, they start off as an ungodly man. Then they become a sinner, standing firm in the sin. And then they become comfortable and they start mocking and scoffing. Downhill, all the way. They start off walking. Then they stand still. And then they sit. They start off listening to the council. Then it becomes their way. And then actually, that's their assembly. That's where they dwell for the rest of their lives. And the reality is that man left to himself in his wicked state will only get worse and worse and worse. Decline, decline and decline. Plumer says this again. No one all of a sudden becomes very vile. They first walk in evil courses. They stand in the way of sinners. And then they at length sit in the seat of the scoffers and the mockers. And the Bible is very, very clear that this is the case as we read in Romans 1, 21 to 30. It says this, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonour their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, to do the things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, 
sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approves of those who practice them. That's the man that the Psalm 1 writer is talking about when he's talking about the ungodly. And that list there, as it reels off the tongue, it's a, it's a vile state to be in. But that's the wicked. And I want to see that this morning. The second thing which is important, the end of this man is very clear and it's unquestionable. The psalmist tells us unequivocally that the end of the wicked is like the chaff being blown away by the wind and that they will not stand boldly at the judgment seat of Christ. One day when they face that throne, they're confident and proud and rebellious and sinful and scornful path will perish and they will face judgment. They will face judgment. Again, they will face judgment. Again, the Bible's clear. Romans 1, 18, just slightly before the passage we've just read. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is definite. And this is their eternal lot. And I don't believe that this is preached enough from pulpits in this land anymore. The wicked have their lot. And it's a frightening one. They don't just die. They're there experiencing the wrath of God and the separation from God eternally. So you may be asking yourselves now, why have we spent so much time on these negative things? Why, why spend that amount of time? Why for the last 10, 12 minutes have we been going over what the wicked man's like? Why aren't you telling us what we're like, the Christian? Well, let's go back to the question. Which category do you fall into? Which category do I fall into? The reality is if you are born again today, the only answer can be that actually we've fallen into both. We've fallen into both. We must allow these verses to penetrate our lives. We must stare at them as if staring into a mirror. And we must have those verses ask us the questions. Is there anything like that still in us? Have we changed at all? Are we still anything like that wicked man that's described within those verses? We must also remind ourselves that actually that's where we started. That's where we all were. As we read in Romans 3, 
in various verses. In verse 10, it says there's none righteous, not one. That doesn't mean there is one that might be righteous. No, there's none righteous. We've all fallen into the category of the wicked man. There is no one who seeks after God. Do you realise that? Do I realise that? Actually, we, we didn't seek after him. Exactly like the wicked man. They've all turned aside, verse 12. They've become unprofitable. There is none who does good. Not one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 18. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. And that famous verse that we all like to quote, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's man after the fall. That's where each and every one of us has at one point sat and rested. That's who we were. And so as we meditate on these negative things and focus on these first few verses, this can only pull our focus and our affections heavenward. It leaves us looking at ourselves and actually knowing that we're in and of ourselves, we are sinful people that outside of God have absolutely no hope as described in Psalm 1. And let's now turn our focus to the positive. What does it say about the righteous and godly man? And we'll see that actually the description is in a total contrast to what we've already been talking about. The psalmist tells us that his delight is not in his own affections and his own path and in his own ideologies and lusts. But his delight is the law of the Lord. This man is not self-centered, is not self-focused, is not self-motivated but he is driven by the standards of God. They are his delight rather than his own ideas. And not only is the law his delight, he meditates on it. He's eager to look at it. He wants it to be a part of his life and to make a change to his life. It's his constant thought. His mind isn't focused on the on the temporal or on the worldly or on the seat of his own life, but he meditates on that which is his delight, which is as a consequence then turns into godly living. This is a practical man. It's not only his character that's shaped but his lifestyle changes and he starts doing the things that a godly man would do. There's evidence within his life that actually this is a man who loves God. What else are we told? He says he's planted 
like a tree by the river of water. And the importance of this verse is is huge. When we look back at what we said about the wicked man, that actually he's stuck there in that place and and outside of that there is no hope. What this verse is saying is that actually God has taken the man and planted him by a river of water that's nourishing his roots and keeping him planted firm and strong. That's what God's done. And it's like a tree, which actually its leaf will not wither. The leaf on the tree will never die, constantly being nourished by that water. He's in a permanent state of evergreen, always ready to blossom, always ready to produce food, unlike the wicked who will perish and face judgment. This man possesses eternal life. Whilst those temptations and storms come and the rage and the persecutions are endured, he will not fall, he will not fail, and he will stand fast because of where he's been placed. He tells us that he will bring forth fruit in its season. So unlike that, that fig tree that we read about that was cursed, that should have been dis- should have been having fruit because of the leaves that were on there. Unlike that fig tree, this tree brings forth fruit. It's not like the chaff, which is useless, but actually the fruit that's produced is useful for both the man himself and for those who he associates with. And whatever he does shall prosper. Unlike the wicked man whose life is just vanity of vanities that comes and goes and perishes, this man's life only prospers. And it eternally prospers. It's not just here and now. There's, you know, there's far too much focus on how we live our life here. The fact is that we've been saved for eternity. As we travel through this life, our end goal is certain. He has gone to prepare a place for us. And that's where we're heading. Whatever we do, we'll always end up in that prosperous state. Because that is what he came to do. To seek and save the lost and to give them that eternal home. So finally, how, how do we conclude all this? How do we, how do we apply it to our lives? Any sermon has to have a conclusion with an application. Otherwise, it's just, it's just words. If it means nothing and can't be applied to life, then we may as well just sit and read a book and then forget all about it. But the word of God has to, it has to reach deep inside of our lives. The psalmist is very emphatic in his opening words. Blessed is the man. In other words, blessing belongs to the man that he is talking about. Now, a blessedness has, has a twofold meaning, depending on which perspective that we look at it. If we look at it from our own perspective, it's about a state of happiness, if you like, and, and enjoyment and joy and, and thrill and, and looking at how good our life is. We're blessed. 
That's if we look at it from our own perspective. The, the, the outcome, if you like, of the blessing. That's how we see blessedness. But from the perspective of God, this word declares one thing. And that's his unmerited, gracious favour on our lives. The blessedness is the act of redemption that he has done for his people. And it's on that that I want us to focus for these closing few minutes. It's absolutely true that a man who avoids and shuns and walks away from the wicked ways in life will be blessed. The man who doesn't listen to the counselling of the ungodly, the man who doesn't walk in the in the path of sinners, the man who doesn't live comfortably around mockers and scorners, of course he's going to be blessed. Of course those actions are going to result in blessings. But the meaning of this psalm has to be far deeper than that. It has to be. As we said earlier, by nature, we are not this type of person. We're just not. Whether we want to face that or not, we're not like the righteous man. And there has only been one person who has ever come close to what this psalm is talking about. In fact, he lived all of it. And that was Jesus Christ, the righteous. Nobody else has ever done it. Nobody else has been a a fully righteous man. Nobody has ever lived up to what the requirements are within this psalm. So I would suggest that this psalm is firstly about Christ himself. As a result of his incarnation, the Son of God, the God-man, the only man in history who embodies the perfect description of the blessed man because of his life, the blessedness falls onto those who are his. They become blessed in him, if you like. They are blessed by him. They're blessed through him. And they're blessed for him. And it's important that we grasp that. This salvation is for God and his glory. And we're blessed because of that. We're so blessed. As we read through that explanation of the wicked man, if we are born again of the spirit of God, we can say that we have been saved from such a plight. We're not, we don't fit that description anymore, even though we have sin in our lives, even though that we will continue to do those sinful actions for the rest of our lives until we are perfected. We've been saved from what we read about there. We've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Our sins have been taken and removed as far as the east is from the west. Not a physical measurement, but something that you can't measure. They're not seen anymore. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We are now that blessed man. But not through the works of our own hands. Because we're not able. But through the work of another. Ephesians 2 tells us this. And you, he made alive. 
He made you alive. You who were dead in trespasses and sins. You who were dead, dead in trespasses and sins. In which you once walked according to the course of this world. Reiterating everything that we've said. According to the prince of the power of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Amongst who also we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. Just as others. That's where we were. But. What comes next? You who worked your way to some sort of righteousness. You who stumbled across some sort of pathway to make yourself good. No. But God, who is rich in mercy. Because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses made us to live together with Christ. It's by grace that you've been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. It's not that we do these things in order that we're blessed, or that we're better put, or better to put it, that we are blessed by God. We don't do these things in order to be blessed. We're blessed And then we do these things. Christ has made us alive to the things of God. And now we walk in his ways. Christ in his salvation sanctifies us in that manner. And it's not in our own works lest we should boast. But we are created. We are his workmanship, which I think is a wonderful way of putting it. He's he's moulding and shaping us. And he'll continue to do that until he comes again. To friends this morning, if you are in Christ, it's a gift. And if you are in Christ, it's a gift that has its working in your life. So to go back to the psalm. If you are in Christ, then you will find yourself walking. But not in the counsel of the wicked, but in the wonderful light of our Lord Jesus Christ and the counsel of his Holy Spirit. You will find yourself standing, but not in the path of sinners, but standing in this, the holy promises of the word of God. And on it, you'll meditate day and night. It'll be your food night and day. And you will find yourself sitting, but not sitting in the seat of the scoffer, but you'll be sitting at the foot of the heavenly throne of God, the Father, and gazing upon his beauty. That's what he's done for us in Christ.
And that is the true blessed man. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the, in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man indeed who is in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word again this morning. We thank you that you reveal clearly in your word what it is that you have done for us. And after reading and, and hearing such a, a great thing, we can only thank you for your goodness, for your kindness, for your mercy in Christ Jesus towards us who are by nature sinful, mocking scorners of God. We thank you that you have taken us at your good pleasure to be your children and that through the coming of your son, through both his work in his life, his death and his resurrection, that you have called us to be children, sons and daughters of the living God. And not only that, we are heirs, heirs of promise. And we thank you, Lord, that you have made that step, that you have made that first step towards us, that you have first loved us and called us. And so, Father, as we finish, I ask that you would make this more of a reality in our lives, that we would understand what it means to be children, that you have birthed us, that you sustain us, and that, Lord, as, as with our own children here in this earthly world, you will take care of us until we mature into that full Christ-likeness that we receive in the next life. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen.